today we begin our study in the book of Philippians. And before we study the opening 11 verses of the first chapter, I want to begin with an overview of the book. The city of Philippi was originally a place called Creonides, which grew because it was in a geographically strategic place between Asia and Europe. In 356 BC, Philip, the father of Alexander the Great, was called on to protect Creonides from neighboring enemies. He chose instead to take the city for himself because he wanted the wealth of its gold mines to pay for its army, among other things, and he ended up naming it after himself. Located in eastern Macedonia in northern ancient Greece, Philippi became a prominent place in large part because two important battles occurred there. The first one was when the joint forces of Mark Antony and Octavian defeated the assassins of Julius Caesar in 42 BC. After this, veterans and their families were given land, and Philippi was declared to be a Roman colony, which was a really big deal. Colonies were designed to keep the peace and be command centers in the vastness of the empire. And this city, Philippi, proudly maintained its Roman nationalism and heritage, keeping uh, everything Roman in architecture and custom and dress and administration. The other battle happened a few years later in which Octavian was victorious over his now former friend, Antony, to become the first Roman emperor whom you might know as Caesar Augustus. Paul came to Philippi on his second missionary journey in the year 49 AD. And the story is told in Acts 16, how Paul wanted to go into Asia, but the Holy Spirit told him no. And then that night, Paul had a dream of a man standing and begging him, saying, come over to Macedonia to help us. So he and Timothy went. As was his usual custom in a new city, Paul sought out a synagogue to preach on the Sabbath. Not finding one, he met a group of women outside the city gate who were praying to God. And Paul talked to them, and one of them, Lydia, a woman of means who sold purple cloth, became a believer in Christ. She and her whole household were baptized, and she begged Paul and Timothy to stay with them so that they might tell more people about the good news. Later, a slave girl healed of demonic oppression and a Roman guard and others formed the core of what would become the church at Philippi. We see the diversity of this small group, which has very little in common except for their newfound belief in Jesus. Paul is asked to leave the city at the request of the magistrates after he has been released from jail for preaching the gospel. But the church grows. And for the rest of the apostles' life, they share a special bond with him. They consistently supported Paul in whatever ways they could, including financially. He did not normally accept gifts from churches, but because of his special 
bond and friendship with them, he did. And when he writes this highly personal letter, he is in prison, probably in Rome. It has been over 10 years since the church has been planted at Philippi, and they sent him a care package along with their brother Epaphroditus, who they are hoping will stay and care for Paul. But when he arrives, Epaphroditus gets very ill, and he is quite homesick. And so after he recovers, Paul sends him back to Philippi along with this letter and a glowing testimony about him, just in case the church thinks badly of Epaphroditus for leaving Paul. This letter has been called the Epistle of Joy. Many see it as one of the loveliest letters ever written by Paul because it's full of thanksgiving and warm sentiment. Joy permeates this letter, not the kind of happiness that we might have when everything is going well in times of abundance or lack of trouble. No, Paul is talking about the kind of joy that is found from knowing the Lord when life is uncertain and hard. We can convince ourselves that joy only exists when we are free from sadness. We can even waste a lot of time waiting for our circumstances to get better so that we will feel good again. But for Paul and the Philippians and for us as the church today, joy is a byproduct of God's presence and goodness permeating even the darkest situations. My prayer for all of us in studying this book in this difficult season is that we will experience the joy of God's presence in new and meaningful ways because he is always with us. In the book of Philippians, we find memorable sentences which we may often quote. For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Your attitude should be the same as Christ Jesus. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. We're going to see that these ideas are found in the context of a larger letter. And hopefully by the end of our time in this book, we will have more richness in knowing what Paul meant by them and what they mean for us in our lives. So let us begin with a short study of Philippians 1, 1 through 11. I'll be reading as usual from the NRSV. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you, constantly praying with joy in every one of my prayers for all of you because of your sharing in the gospel from the first day until now. I am confident of this, that the one who began a good work among you will bring it to completion by the day of Jesus Christ. 
It is right for me to think this way about all of you because you hold me in your heart. For all of you share in God's grace with me, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness. How I long for all of you with the compassion of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may overflow more and more with knowledge and full insight to help you to determine what is best so that in the day of Christ, you may be pure and blameless, having produced the harvest of righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus for the glory and praise of God. Amen. Because this is the opening of a letter and not necessarily a complete theological thought, I want to highlight a few ideas that we find here. First, I want to talk about the nature of encouragement. There is an Anne Frank quote that just knocks me over. Everyone has inside of them a piece of good news. The good news is that you don't know how great you can be, how much you can love, what you can accomplish, and what your potential is. Such wisdom from a girl who died at the age of 15 in the Holocaust. She clearly had the heart and the desire to lift other people up. We see that same thing in Paul. This note is meant to build up the church, which it does first at Philippi, then through the centuries, and now to us as the modern church. We might wonder what Paul would think of his letters being a key source of how we know the truths of Jesus. Jesus, who is mentioned here seven times in the verses we read. Because at the center of Paul's thoughts, at the core of his work, in all of his relationships, we find Christ. This inspires us and challenges us to consider what or who is at the center of our lives. When I turned 18, one of my brothers wrote me the most amazing letter. He told me how proud he was of me and how he wished in my life he would have told me that more. He told me how in my life up until now, people had made choices for me, but moving forward, I was the one who was going to make those choices that would impact my life. And he reminded me that I wasn't just getting flung out there into the world by myself, but that Jesus would go before me always. He said that my love for people would be the guiding principle of everything that I did and that God would use that for good. The words that we use to encourage one another make a huge impact. I just quoted that note to you from my brother from memory. Encouraging another person is one of the greatest gifts we can give another person. I bet you remember and know and have in your memory the hopeful things that people have said about you or written about you. You can be assured that people have remembered the supportive words that you have spoken over them. Encouragement isn't just platitudes meant to make people feel good. 
It's saying specific truths to people about who you know them to be for the purpose of affirming them so that they might go on being those people. It's a way that God keeps the bonds between us strong. It's a way that God keeps us going as we are reminded who we are in Him, as we focus in on who He believes us to be, the lies we take to heart about ourselves fade away. Here we see that the love goes both ways. Encouraging one another is not something that we do with just words, but acts of genuine compassion. The church has lifted Paul up while he has been out there doing the work of the gospel, this church has been praying for and supporting him. They are connected through the shared work that they do, that they understand for Christ. And while they are apart, they know that one another are being obedient to how God is leading them to spread the gospel for his glory. This is one of the reasons why our relationships with all of the missionaries that all of us support is so vital. Jesus has told us to go, all of us go and make disciples. He is the one who directs where we go and how we do it. And as we go, we are meant to be faithfully praying and encouraging all the other ones who are going to spread the gospel. In this way, we share the work of Christ. On that note, though, we should always be thanking those who serve us, especially right now. So I want to encourage all of us to make time this week to thank one person in a tangible way, a teacher, a first responder, those who provide health care in any way, a farm worker, those who work in or around our homes, grocery checkers and waiters, the staff person at any business or school, those in manufacturing or construction, whomever the Lord brings to your mind. Dennis talked to us a few weeks ago about essential workers. And when you Google that term, the list is so long. We might not necessarily be sharing the work of the gospel with them, but we can share the love of Jesus in our thanks to them. Verse 6 has been a promise that I have held on to my whole life. You know how youth leaders can impress ideas on you that stick with you? Someone told us in high school to have a verse that we would claim for our walk with God. And I don't know how I came to this, but verse 6 was what I chose. He who began a good work among you will bring it to completion by the day of Jesus Christ. I'm unsure why I was so drawn to this idea. Perhaps it's because it holds such promise. That at such a young age, I wasn't having to figure out how to be a Christian. It was God who had started a good work inside my soul. And it was God who would finish it until I saw him face to face. He would bring it to completion. Let's think about that. Everything begins and ends with the Lord 
God Almighty until we enter the realm where there is no beginning or end. And Paul speaks with such conviction and assurance that I grabbed onto the idea of God's faithfulness for me and for everyone around me who trusted the Lord with their lives. Paul's talking to the church, but I took it to mean my own heart and journey as I joined the church. How much this verse has come true in my life. God began a good work in me through Christ. And he continues to do that work 40 years of walking with him. And I look forward to the day of meeting him face to face, having completed what he had for me to do and be on earth. When you read that God will see the work in us to completion, remember, no matter what, God never, ever gives up. The author John Stott says it this way, The perseverance of the saints rests with the perseverance of God with the saints. We can hold on to God because he is always there holding on to us. Speaking of which, there are two references here about the day of Christ Jesus coming again in verse 6 and also in verse 10. This is the moment when Jesus will return in glory and triumph to establish fully his kingdom, which has been and is being revealed to us all the time. I've talked to a few people this week about something that often comes up in conversations um, as a pastor. When a life-changing issue happens, a serious diagnosis or a death in the family or a drastic change in a, a, a job or, or losing everything, people say, or even the threat of it, people say that they're not going to wait anymore to do what is important to them. They're not going to put off going on a trip or uh, learning a musical instrument or reaching out to their estranged family member. They're going to tell people in their lives that they love them. They're going to change their unhealthy habits. They're going to become less selfish. And when people are followers of Jesus, what often happens is that they say that they're going to stop being worried about what people think about them when they share the gospel. That Jesus has literally become life and death to them in such a profound and different way that they must share. They must give. And I think that what all of this is about is that somehow we lose our fear. Somehow when we are threatened with something that so um, threatens our lives that we lose our fear and God replaces it with a confidence and a conviction to live for him in new ways and we become compelled to tell others about the love of Christ and this is something for all of us to think about right now do we live as though our lives and the lives of others literally depend on Jesus what does that look like in our lives that we are so dependent on Jesus and we are not going to be afraid to live for him and 
all that that means. Paul talks a lot about prayer here. He begins by saying how he thanks God every time he remembers the believers at Philippi. What a beautiful, beautiful sentiment. Someone told me a while back that that prayer time at our church feels like a comforting blanket around them. Amen. How often do people just come unbidden, pop into our minds, out of the blue, they're there. When you think about someone, don't just dismiss them and get back to what you're doing. Stop and say a prayer for them. Whether they're people that you love and respect and hold dear, especially if they're someone with whom you struggle, ask the Lord to bless them. If you have more time and if the Lord keeps bringing them to mind, if he keeps impressing their face on you or who they are, stop. Please stop and ask Jesus, Jesus, how can I pray? How is it, Lord, that you want me to pray for this person that you keep bringing to mind? It may be that the Lord wants you to reach out to them. It may be that there's something going on in their lives and he absolutely needs you to call them. Do it. Whatever impression comes from the Holy Spirit, pray that prayer. Reach out to that person. Paul says that he prays that their love would overflow. This is his prayer for them. That their love would overflow more and more with knowledge and full insight, with discernment, so they may be found fully in Christ when he returns. It's a theme of righteousness here, a theme of holiness. He prays that this would happen because they have produced a harvest of righteousness that only comes from knowing Jesus. The purpose of this harvest of righteousness is to honor and glorify and praise God. This prayer is one that maybe we should write down and put where we can see it every day. Because this prayer shows Paul's incredible insight into what faith in Jesus is about. What we see here is process. In Romans, Paul writes that we are transformed by the renewing of our minds. In these verses, we also see the passive voice, for God is the one who is at work in us. Those who will be saved on the day of Christ live holy lives now that portray how God's salvation is from beginning to end in them. This salvation doesn't depend on us to start it, nor do we keep it going through our own sheer efforts. God is the one who makes our love overflow. He is the one that gives us knowledge and insight. He is the one who redeems us through Christ. And he produces a harvest of righteousness through the son he sent. We partner with him. And he does most of the work. The themes that we find just in these opening verses are like streams of living water. 
that fill our souls. Can you just feel these words it's flowing over us by the power of the Holy Spirit? Here, Paul gives witness to being people of prayer, of faithfully looking in anticipation to the day of Christ's return. He talks about how it is that the church is meant to encourage one another. Paul inspires the Philippians to live in holiness, focused on the glory of God. When we do that, the shared bonds of the Holy Spirit working through us, no matter how far we are separated, strengthen and encourage our souls. Friends, this is what the church is meant to be about. Remember, Paul wrote these words from prison to a church which was being actively persecuted. And neither one of them, Paul nor the church, had any certainty about what their future was going to hold. And still, he preached a message of hope. And still, they believed and acted on the hope that they knew. In our time, in our season, in our moment right now, with wave after wave of terrible and sad things happening all around us, we have the fresh opportunity to seek the Lord to determine what is best. What decisions can we make in this moment of our lives? We have the honor of sharing true hope to those around us. True hope is not found in the extinguishing of fires or the return to the classroom or the healing of a devastating illness in the outcome of an election or the discovery of a vaccine. True hope is found in Jesus. We can and must be reaching out to the poor and the lonely, and the brokenhearted, and the disenfranchised, just as Jesus models and empowers us to do. The people of God should cultivate strong bonds held together by the power of the Holy Spirit in all we face, because he needs us to be a unified light in the world. In this time, let's not be scattered. In this time, let's not pick and choose different churches and different great pastors to listen to. Let us bond together with local believers so that we can do the work that Christ asks us and needs us to do. Sisters and brothers, fellow co-laborers in the gospel, we are the church. And not being able to meet in person doesn't prevent us from being connected with Jesus or one another. There is so much. There is the harvests are white, Jesus says. We have to go and do what the Lord is asking us to do in our neighborhoods and in our world. And I look forward to continuing to band together with you maybe virtually, maybe in person, but always with hope. Let us prayerfully seek God for what it means to share his grace with other believers as we work to advance the gospel of hope.
in our city. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you would like to learn more about the Free Methodist Church of Santa Barbara, you can visit us online at fmcsb.org. We pray this message has been a blessing to you.